Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Apologise for there not being a show on Sunday, but someone, and Michael we won't point names, drugged himself to the gills with steroids and fell asleep somewhere during a, what I can only imagine was a very interesting conversation. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for not pointing uh, fingers there, Gary. Let's just leave it to the imagination of the listener. Absolutely, and let them also imagine that someone of the two of us, had to then desperately try and wake that person up by calling him and making loud noises, and then eventually had to resort to playing heavy metal through the speakers in an attempt to wake his uh, co-presenter up, something which proved to be absolutely impossible. I will link below some heavy metal if you're curious what that person can sleep through. As you can imagine, dear listeners, I have myself lots and lots of heavy metal on my computer so the fact that Gary has some heavy metal means nothing in this context and I will also simply observe the it is an Olympic year and some people you know have a job to do I can't even remember what we were talking about last week I, I actually I, I, I remember exactly what we were talking about we were talking about the programs that would need to be put in place by the government in order to deal with when we get to the end of this in order to ensure that businesses don't collapse or continue as zombie businesses and how to thread that needle and you fell asleep as we were explaining what would need to happen there. Oh, Gary, you let the cat out of the bag. You have to edit that now. I'll just, I'll just blank that one out. <laughs> I'll just put a loud noise over that and the mystery will, be, uh, will still be there and no one will know the horrible truth. Yes, that's the important thing. This will go to our graves. It's not the worst thing that's happened. No, no. I mean, fairness was the Black Death. Anyway, what you should take from this is that TRSI is the tightest of ships. Tight, tight ship. Anyway, so on to the actual things we want to talk about. We've got a little bit of talk on the ICCL and uh, their funding. They say they're independent. They've accepted somewhere in the region of two million from the EU since 2011. Want to talk a little bit about that and about some of the interesting little things in their accounts. Also wanted to talk about the far left, or sorry, the far right observatory, which is a uh, largely anonymous group of activists who have now been granted state funding of a fairly considerable amount. Even though they have no public facing really presence, they've no means of contacting them, and they, as a legal entity, don't seem to exist at all. Good enough, Michael, to give them state money. But what I wanted to start with is, Michael, we have complained endlessly, I think, about Simon Coveney and his approach to China when you compare it to his approach to, let's say, Britain, which I think I have described before as somewhat akin to a bull on bath salts. Yeah, I don't really know what that means, but I like the image. Yeah, it's prov- it gets the people going. It's provocative. When he's dealing with China, he's always very lovely and very understanding, Michael, because the Chinese take offense easily, or at least the CCP does. He has actually found a limit, Michael. Something has happened which has pushed him to cause, or to call, foreign regime and simply say that it's not legitimate. Not legitimate? They're, them, is, them is fighting words, Gary. I would say those are revolutionary words, Michael. So, how has China responded? Well, no, it wasn't China. Uh, oh, oh. It was Belarus. Belarus. Not Rus, but Belarus. So, you see, Belarus forced a Ryanair plane to land so that they could detain at least one, possibly two people on it. It looks like it was at least two. But there's talk of one of them being convicted and then sent to Russia. And I haven't really been following the issue because I don't really care. Well, that's what you care about so many other things. It is a wide and wondrous world, Michael. 
and you're going to be ignorant about a certain amount of things, you may as well just openly say it, rather than try to bullshit that you've actually, you know, you care about this particular thing. Sherlock Holmes famously didn't know about lots of stuff. I think we can all learn from his uh, example, particularly the benefits of copious amounts of morphine and opium. And cocaine. And cocaine. The plane, the plane is, is, divor- is diverted, it's forced to land, uh, someone on it is detained by the Lyshenko regime because he is a journalist and it's the Lyshenko regime, it's, it's what they do. They're usually not like this. That moved Coveney to say that uh, Belarus, the, the regime of Alexander Lyshenko is, uh, is not legitimate, is, is totally illegitimate. I think we should go out the limb here and say that uh, we think diverting planes off the, uh, their, their, their set course in order to force them to land to arrest journalists is a bad thing. Yes, I think we can all agree that using fighter planes to divert a flight so you can arrest a, uh antagonistic journalist is not, you know, quote-unquote, a good thing. And it is possible that Belarus is, well, not a well-governed country, Gary, according to the lights of liberal Western Democrats like ourselves. No, but I, his language was very interesting, Michael, that uh, this move had shown Lushenko has all but criminalised freedom of expression, that trivial forms of dissent carry heavy costs and lengthy sentences. He said that what had happened was an outrageous attack on EU uh, aviation, and that if Lushenko was not held to account, that impunity would, uh, that would breed violence. Yeah. Now, yeah, that's fine. You want to have a very moral foreign policy, you want to say these things, that's all cool. That brings me to some more quotes from uh, Simon Coveney, Michael, because I think we've all agreed his quotes are quite nice. So here's some quotes that I don't think have been reported in the Irish media, uh, and I include gripped in that because we are still trying to verify them. Uh, so Simon Coveney recently met with Wang Yi, who is the foreign minister of China. He is. And after this meeting, the Chinese government put up a um, transcript of what had been said. Now, I've reached out to the Department of Foreign Affairs to ask them, is this an accurate uh, summary of, of what Simon Coveney said when he met the Chinese? And, Michael, I haven't gotten an answer. And the Department of Foreign Affairs is usually pretty good at getting back to you. And I would suspect I haven't got an answer because if they confirm this is what Simon Coveney said, it may look bad. So we've been waiting for that before we publish, but if we don't hear back from them tomorrow, we'll probably just write it up anyway. But here's, here's what we have. Right. And it's important just to point out that the Chinese, that Wang Yi says that at this, he talked to Simon Coveney about the true situation in Xinjiang, where I would remind you China is, by all accounts, conducting a genocide, and the process of Hong Kong's transition from chaos to stability. That's my favourite, I have to say. I mean, we talked about the Uyghur situation before and we're not joking about that. We're not being flippant about that. It, it, uh, with the last of us, we said we put the, on the list of the 10 indicators of whether or not genocide was taking place, it had actually scored 9 out of 10. And uh, But in the, in the more recent assessment, it was possibly gone to 10. What's happening uh, uh, in, is, is horrific. And uh, the silence... A, in our own country, whatever about Europe, has been deafening. But what we've seen in Hong Kong has been this constant conflict between the guarantees that Hong Kong were given at the time of transition from the when from the UK uh, back into 
the motherland, that there would be a respect for certain institutions that Hong Kong would be Chinese, but would be different. And that those institutional freedoms, the democratic freedoms, the freedom of the press, those would be respected. Now, there has been a continual erosion and that erosion and the imposition, the coercive imposition of a lot of those changes has resulted in very large scale protests by people in Hong Kong. So what he is essentially characterizing is the, the, the generally organized, uh, well, in the context of what happened in America, could we call them peaceful? Pro they're not peaceful protests. I wouldn't call them thuggishly violent, but there's, they're, they're, they're protests and they're large scale protests by the people of Hong Kong against this. This is chaos. And I think that from the, from the Chinese perspective, at least the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party, you can regard uh, liberal democracy and chaos as being synonymous. And what they're doing is transitioning Hong Kong from that fundamentally unstable, chaotic system into a system which is consonant with the values of the, the Chinese Communist Party. But it's there's a wonderful, reassuring, sonorous quality to that phrase, isn't there? That transition from chaos to order. So Coveney congratulated China on its successful control of COVID-19 and thanked China for its valuable support and sincere assistance in the Irish fight against the pandemic. He said that Ireland wants to prioritise its practical cooperation with China and stands ready to deepen cooperation with China in fields such as cyber security and aviation, as well as at local levels to overcome the impact of the pandemic. Sorry, Gary, can we just, could, we, could you give me a repeat on that? We want to deepen relationships on what? Cybersecurity and aviation. Can we just stand back and admire that for a couple of seconds? We want to go in with China to cooperate on cybersecurity. That's a fantastic idea. Okay, go on. He praised China's firm safeguarding of multilateralism, despite the headwinds of unilateralism. Because multilateralism, Michael, is vital to small and medium-sized countries. Multilateralism, like you would, like they would, they don't take unilateral uh, trade uh, punishments or tra uh, trade tariffs against countries because they disagree with them over policy issues. Like, like they wouldn't just go off their own bat and decide to impose extreme tariffs on Australia or something like that. Like, like wine, for instance. For example, just off, so that kind of union. They, yeah, okay, okay. He said that China had courageously undertaken its responsibilities uh, when it was president of the UN Security Council uh, in May and had played a leading role on the issues related to Africa and the Middle East. He said that Ireland wanted to strengthen coordination and cooperation with China in fields such as climate change and peacekeeping. Cybersecurity was good. Climate change? How many, off the top of your head, I mean, we can guess, but I think there's a number in my head. How many coal-fired power stations is China building at any one time in a year? I think you could probably get all of Ireland's CO2 emissions out of one decent-sized Chinese coal plant. But we're going to cooperate with China uh, and take the, uh, the who, playing a leading role on climate change. Well, I mean, I think, Michael, this ties into the next thing he said about the Chinese, that the international community should focus on cooperation rather than pointing fingers. Because, you know, both Europe and China play a vital role in the world and share broad interests. And it's still the shared aspiration of European countries to strengthen cooperation with China. Both sides, Michael, 
will make irrevocable mistakes of historic consequences if each side goes its own way due to certain man-made obstacles. And the EU-China Comprehensive Investment Agreement shares the common interests, so both sides should overcome the current difficulties through candid dialogues. As a good friend of China in the EU, Ireland is willing to be China's trustworthy partner and it expects further progress of the EU-China relationships. What I particularly liked there, Michael, other than his very lovely one on how, you know, we've got to come together in cooperation and not point fingers, that was in relation to COVID. Because, you know, certain people, Michael, are saying things about Chinese labs and China lying to the WHO and lots of stuff like that. What I really loved was that um, the issue, the issues here between Europe and China come from man-made obstacles. Yeah, what does that mean? I, I genuinely, I, I, that, that kind of stumped me. Well, I mean, in, in Xinjiang, with the genocide, the Chinese did build the concentration camps. They are man-made. Sure. Man-made. In the world of politics, pretty well everything is man-made. He ends, by the way, saying, as a good friend of China in the EU, Ireland is willing to be China's trustworthy partner. And it expects further progress of the EU-China relations. Now, why I bring this up? Obviously, you've the cybersecurity things, you've the climate change things, you've the genocide relegated to man-made obstacles to this trade deal we want. You have all that stuff, and there's loads of stuff there. But my interest in it is this: we have the Lyshenko thing. Yes, Lyshenko, no longer a legitimate regime because it diverted a plane in order to seize a single person. And other people may have been seized with him, but the aim was one person. China is actively genociding an ethnic minority. And we've gotten well past the point where there's any real debate on that. We've had independent legal reviews. We've had uh, major journalistic media on the ground talking to people who came out of the camps. We've had Chinese government documents. It's pretty clear what's going on. And just to throw some colour in there, Gary, just... Okay, that's the broad headline. Remember, we now have very strong evidence to suggest that they are deliberately they are harvesting organs for sale to Westerners who in need of organ transplants. We know that they have been again this year cracking down hard on all all forms of religious belief and expression. The the underground Catholic Church in China, even though the, the Vatican has been making Concord Act noises with them, the uh, Falun Gong, who they have been constantly spinning against all across the world, but the house churches, the Protestant house churches, they have been they've been going after them. They've been arresting these people. People are being imprisoned. They're being tortured. The churches, churches and shrines are being knocked down. Human rights and the expectations of human rights in Hong Kong are being attacked and eroded. It's not we're talking about a single issue of human rights failings in China, Gary. We're talking about human rights failings, which you might say, I'm sure the Chinese would say, according to their particular philosophy, they don't have to buy in to the Western Enlightenment. They don't have to buy in to some kind of Western European notion of rights theory or whatever. And that's true. But if you're talking about and you're engaging them from that perspective, let's not pretend that this is anything except that it is. And what's you know, there's the Lord Par there's the famous Lord Palmerston quote, um, talking about British foreign policy, where he says that 
England has no perpetual, no eternal allies and no perpetual enemies. Our interests are eternal and perpetual, and it is those interests that are duty to follow. Now, if Simon Coveney was to come out and say, we are following Lord Palmerston's foreign policy, that would be honest. That would be respectable. And you could call that a form of real politique. And I know you're not a, you're not adverse to a little bit of real politique yourself, Kerry. But to go around pretending that we're engaged in some kind of ethical foreign policy and to throw some kind of ethical hissy fit over the state of Belarusia and then to go along and engage in this kind of chat with China because we have the, and we do have massive, massive economic interests in the behaviour of the Chinese. It's just pure, I mean, it's beyond hypocrisy. Yeah, Michael, it, it's a situation that makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I am a person, as you said, not opposed to a little bit of the old real politique. And I find myself in a position where I look at things the Irish state is doing and you sort of go, that seems a bit much. You want, as you said, you want to have an ethical thing. You don't get into bed with the genocidal totalitarians who seem to be actively involved in a genocide and have, let us remind everyone, appear to have uh, kidnapped an Irish citizen. About whom? Nothing. I mean, what was your man in? He was arrested in Egypt. Do you remember him? Halawi. Yeah, I, it seemed to me that the papers, the the late late the the radio shows, there was nothing but Mr. Halawi. How how often have we heard Simon refer to the Irishman being held in China for two two years now? Coveney did say, or well, the Department of Foreign Affairs did say that Coveney had brought it up. And, you know, they had a long and frank discussion about it. Oh, yeah. I would be very interested to know exactly what form that discussion took. Because, you know, sometimes, Michael, when you're, when you're in certain positions, you have to bring up certain topics. Yeah, because somebody's going to say to you, did you bring that up, Minister? So you have to be able to say yes. Yeah, in the same way, like, I've had meetings where the entire purpose of the meeting is for me to formally express the displeasure of another party to a particular party. And you just, sometimes you can do that, and it's a very serious thing, and sometimes it's, listen, lads, I need to say this because I'm required to say it, but, like, let's not worry ourselves about it too much. It just needs to be said. And I would just be curious where we are on this. I do recall a while ago Simon Coveney saying that he didn't want to debate on this, that particular issue in the doll, because it would be unhelpful. Unhelpful. That's a wonderful word, isn't it, for politicians? You know, I, I don't think that discussion is helpful, you know. Well, you know, Michael, an Irish citizen may have been kidnapped, but there are certainly, you know, one could say he's going through the legal process there, to the extent there is a legal process there. And you could also say, but Michael, Irish farmers need, need to get their beef into China. And they're... And their babies, baby milk. Absolutely. And if we just came out and said, listen, our foreign policy is literally, we don't give a fuck about anything but trade, I would say that's perfectly fine. It's this constant, Ireland is a moral country horseshit that gets wheeled out. And you're like, well, if we're a moral country, why are we doing these awful things? It's just, just say, you know, we're not, we're not a terrible country. We're just self-interested, and the Chinese have money that we would like. So we will look over genocide in order to get that. And that's, I think, a perfectly defensible utilitarian position. 
You can say we're just a little country. We're trying to make our way in the world. Um, there's nothing we can do in practice or in practical uh, that's going to in the least bit affect Chinese domestic policies. Nothing we will do or say will do that. If some other big muscly countries like the United States or Russia decide they want to get involved in it, and then maybe they can do something. But we're not going to do anything because we can't. And we have to feed our own people. So, lads, you know, we're just going to have to deal with it. That That is a realistic foreign policy, and it's probably correct. But instead we have this grotesque spectacle of one day we'll go around and we'll say, well, someone did something, which is not a minor thing, but relative to what we're ignoring is insignificant, and say those people no longer have legitimacy. The entire regime no longer has legitimacy. And the next day we'll just totally ignore something like an actively occurring genocide. Because it's, you know, beneficial for us to do so. Also, by the way. And it's the hypocrisy, Michael. That's the worst thing. It's, well, of course, we know that hypocrisy isn't the worst thing, is it, Gary? It's probably the genesis. The thing about the, also, the Lyshenko thing is him diverting that uh, airplane, if he has, and the whole regime has lost its legitimacy. It had lost legitimacy a long time ago, Gary. This particular incident is not the grand guignol thing that is actually going to cause them to lose their legitimacy. If it had lost it, it was lost, it was lost a long time ago. And this is just an egregious example of what bullies do when they can. Lyshenko has done some stuff, Michael. You might be surprised to hear. He's arguably worse than this. Oh, I think so. I th- oh, oh, I think so. Pretty a lot worse. clearly worse than this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no, this this is what pushed Simon over the edge. Maybe it was the disruption of international aviation, but then the Irish government acted to pretty much destroy the Irish aviation industry. So, like, if that's the basis you lose legitimacy on, this government does not have long to go. No, this is a government to actively despise the Irish aviation industry. But anyway, I just wanted to, to bring it up, mostly to report the Chinese, um, the, the, the statements that the Chinese are saying Coveney made. There is overall just a tone of sort of groveling to them. Yeah, it's all a bit. I mean, there is, like, I understand the need. Like, if we're going to go down that route and we're going to play nice with the Chinese and we're going to do all those kind of things, there's still a point where you sort of go, have a little bit of self-respect about it. Like, you don't need to get down on your knees for this. Oh, Gary, there are certain things you have to, you know, I'm sorry, Gary, there are certain things that if you're going to do them, you're better off doing them on your knees. Just, I can hear him gently saying to the to the Prime Minister, please, just be gentle. Anyway. I'm sure the Chinese foreign ministry will take that with all the grace and diplomacy they take most things. Indeed. So, moving on from that, the ICCL, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, we did, a group published a bit of a piece there that I wrote on their finances. So the ICCL, for those who don't know, is Ireland's premier human rights and civil liberties body, according to their website. And they, a big thing of the ICCL is that they're totally independent, that they don't accept uh, government or state support or monies that there's no influence on them and a follow-on from that is you know that they're held up primarily by their members yeah although actually they don't really say that and in their accounts they will pretty clearly say that that's not the case but when they talk about things publicly that's very much the narrative they put forward that this is an organic grassroots membership organization fighting for civil liberties in ireland oh yeah fighting so hard and um, that narrative, Michael, is not terribly accurate. What I found first and foremost was that the EU has given these guys 
I figure about 2 million since 2011. Now that's about 20% of the ICCL's operating budget. Now interestingly enough, Michael, Yeah? Every figure I was able to get from the EU as to how much money they had paid the ICCL did not match the figures in the ICCL's accounts in their annual reports. Not a single figure matched. And similarly, we got uh, sent on an FOI response from the um, IHREC, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, which showed that they had paid money to the ICCL as well. Now, the interesting thing there is that the IHREC is technically independent, but is entirely state-funded. So any money it takes from the, um, the, the IHREC is public money. It's, it's state money. So they get that's and they get they're completely funded by the state, even though they are an independent body. Of course, absolutely. So they, oh right, uh, and do we know what kind of money they gave them? Well, it look interesting thing about this, Michael. It looks like these payments started around two thousand and seventeen. The IHREC are saying that they paid somewhere in the region of forty thousand to the um, ICCL over three years. So those are figures from 2020, and we can't see those for the ICCL because they haven't uh, put in their report for 2020 yet. Interestingly enough, again, the figures contained in the ICCL's accounts in their uh, annual reports do not match the figures that the IHREC showed us. None of the figures match. Now, I don't want to imply anything there because I honestly don't know what's happening and there may just be some perfectly reasonable explanation for it. I just thought it was very interesting because when you start, you know, looking into someone's accounts and the numbers don't match, that's sort of an immediate, oh, that's interesting. Okay. So the ICCL, when the public has asked them before, and I went back through their social media and some of their their public statements, and so when people ask them how do they fund themselves if they're not state funded, what they would say is, we receive support from a number of charitable trusts and foundations aligned with our mission to champion human rights and civil liberties. And then we also receive support from our members and supporters, you know, whose generous support, blah, 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 blah. Yes. That's not false. They do receive money from those people. But it does rather ignore the people giving you two million. I suppose the ICCL could say, well, we, we say we don't accept government funding or state funding. We mean the Irish state. And this is EU money. So this is an entirely different thing. Ooh, that's fan- That's fancy. That's fancy footwork there now. That is fancy footwork. But if you go into their, if you go into their accounts, into their annual reports, they openly say they're getting money from the EU. They're not trying to hide it. It's mm-hmm. just in basically a decade of them taking money, no journalist has ever looked at the accounts and then went to the ICC element. Lads, the yeah the. the just the, the massive sums of money you're getting from the EU. Yeah. Some would argue that that's, you know, state funding of a type, given it's the EU. And what do you think about that? And I would be curious what answer they got, because I asked the ICCL that, and I didn't get any answer from it. I also asked them why none of the figures matched, and I definitely didn't get an answer about that one. But I did want to just touch on the, the, the point here, why organisations don't accept state funds. It's because if you accept state funds... Because the state is so large, they can give you quite large sums of money and you you can end up being influenced with them, by them or appearing to be influenced by them simply because they can say, well, we'll put these grant conditions there. Or we'd like you to do these things and they can control you in a way. So you don't do that because you don't want to be controlled by an entity and you want to you know have total independence. If you're accepting two million quid from the EU since 2011, 
it would seem quite clear that you run into exactly the same pitfalls that you would run into with state funding. But then when you look at the ICCL and you go back through their funding, they've only started actually giving a breakdown of their income in the last two or three years. Before that, it's not a black box, but there's no real information there. But we know that uh, their primary funder at that point was Chuck Feeney's Atlantic uh, Philanthropies. Yeah. That gave them about 12 million in over about 20 years. And when you actually look at even now who's being paid for them, it's a few very big organizations and grant-making bodies. And it's not the membership at all. So it would seem, even if the ICCL does not accept state funding, the people it accepts money from are on such a scale that they would seem to replicate the, the risks of taking state funding anyway. It's, it's one or two big things. And you can see this in the ICCL's accounts. 2017 was the last year that uh, Chuck Feeney's crowd gave them money because it shuttered its doors in 2017. Yeah, it's one Since down. 2017, the ICCL's budget has fallen by somewhere in the region of 60 to 70%. Yeah, I would say that that's probably not an unusual circumstance for a lot of organisations involved in social-facing advocacy in Ireland that since the, wind- the winding down of... Atlantic Philanthropies has probably been very bad news for a lot of these organisations. Gary, listen, I, I, while I am I'm sure the Irish Civil Liberties uh, are touched by your concern that uh, taking donations from such large philanthropic, philanthropic bodies as, say, Atlantic uh, Philanthropy or whatever George Soros's outfit is or the Ford Foundation or the Koch Brothers, and I'm, and I'm sure you're concerned for their independence is real and uh, heartfelt. My concern is, why the hell are we giving them money? As in we, as in the Irish state or the EU, which is, as, as Ireland is now a, a net contributor, which is Irish taxpayers' money going from there as well. Why are we giving them money? And it's not just them. I don't have a particular problem. Well, I have issues with the ICCL, but all of these bodies, why are we giving them money? Why are we giving, why do governments give money to organisations to lobby against government policy or to lobby against this, the interests of the citizens of the country in order for their particular ends and means? I, I don't understand this. That is, a, that is a particular interesting thing here, because I had a look at the, I was trying to work out the membership of the ICCL, because they don't release membership figures. But there is always a question with these organisations of how much of this is just propped up by a couple of large trusts and grants and how much of this is a legitimate grassroots uh, organisation that is comprised primarily of just people from the public. And because if, if you are that type of organisation, it seems you have a lot more legitimacy because you have to broadly represent those people. If you are getting all of your money through trusts or the state you will optimize your organization to get more money from those things because that's how you continue to exist. And the ICCL, Michael, having lost that amount of its funding that quickly, would appear to be very much in a we-need-money-to-exist phase. Mm -hmm. But when you actually look at how many members they have, it's actually quite difficult to work out for this reason. You would think that the Irish Council for Civil Liberties is a charity. You are wrong. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties is a company. There is a charity behind them with a different name. And there is also the Irish Council for Civil Liberties Association. Now, the association is where the membership fees have gone up to 2019. 
And when you look at how much this organization has gotten from membership fees, you're talking like five to seven thousand a year, Michael. Well, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. We've seen other organizations similarly with numbers like that when you talk when you're talking about membership dues. So if you if you divide if you look at that in light of how much it costs to get a membership in the ICCL, you're looking at somewhere I think between 140 to 400 members. So like. There are local GAA clubs that have more members than this. Oh, God, yeah. But here's the interesting thing. Then it has donations from supporters. There are many years, Michael, that number is zero. Okay. Like, there, I, one of the years I pulled, they made something like 1.4 million. And of that, a thousand euro came from donations. So, I mean, Michael, you were talking about a real organization of the people here. Oh, Absolutely. But the thing is, Gary, sorry, I just got the, the problem is, yeah, these are not, you could say, white-based organizations of the people, but they do have huge legitimacy. They have, they it, which is conferred on them, both by the media and by the state, where they are now considered to be stakeholders. And I guarantee if there's any discussion about issues about civil liberties, about laws, about freedom of speech, whatever. The first thing the Irish Times will do, will they'll go and get a quote from the ICCF. The first thing the government will do will be invite them into, to, into the Dáil Commission to speak about it, just by their very existence and by the fact that they get money from two or three large charities. It gives them this, I regard, fake uh, legitimacy. They're like Potemkin villages. It's all front but behind. But they... When they so they, they make a statement, and people say, oh, uh, uh, "The chairman of," and it's printed in the paper. Uh, it's it's treated like some kind of holy writ. It's like a quote from scripture. Oh well, we have to take this seriously because this is from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. Well, why the fuck do we have to take it seriously? Well, because in two thousand and sixteen, they got seven hundred and thirty-five thousand euro from the EU, and the EU wouldn't give that money to people who weren't fundamentally respectable, Michael. The right sort of people, the people you should listen to. Interestingly enough, in 2019, Michael, there's now two different types of membership. There's one in the association, which is what they traditionally use, and there's one in the company. Right. And it's about seven times higher than their traditional membership levels. So I don't know what that is. Maybe a corporate membership, maybe some sort of... I don't know. I don't know what it is. I did ask them about it. The, the, the ICCL very rarely responds to queries from me. I will just put that out front. Can't imagine why. Well, I should have thought that they were... Surely they, they believe in transparency and openness and governance and all that kind of stuff. Why would you assume that? Well, because they're... Aren't they basically like Swedes, except living in Ireland? Perfectly evolved social democrats that you just want everything to be out in the open because we all know that sunlight is the best disinfectant and truth and the news and honesty and all the fill in the gaps yourself the charity behind them has no staff it only has volunteers right now that hasn't stopped it from pulling in some i would say respectable amounts of money michael which then presumably gives to the iccl it's just it's an odd structure if your interest is transparency well i'm assuming they're interested in transparency i I don't actually i know and i'm sure they'll come back to you eventually and tell you everything that you need to know it's a busy old time you know when people are walking away from their desks with the pandemic oh i'm sure the iccl is you know just right on the verge of getting back to me i i think i will be waiting 
for a while. I was particularly just interested to see that the ICCL is not actually a charity. Well, that is a curiosity. But till they get listen to the way these the way these things are organised legally, I'm sure they're perfect. There's a perfectly reasonable and efficient reason for efficiency. God knows. It does rather explain to me, make it very very clear that when the ICCL a couple of years ago, Michael was arguing so strongly that SIPO should not crack down on foreign donations for political purposes, had that, had that not been uh, decided against, had SIPO actually started cracking down, the ICCL doesn't draw in... Now, I can't find the exact figures for how much their staff make, but it's an Irish NGO, and they actually have a pretty general range. Like, I'd say their CEO is at least 90,000 into six figures, depending on the organisation. The ICCL, in most of the years I have seen, does not bring in enough in membership fees and donations to pay Liam Herrick's salary, let alone anything else. If he's on less than 90000 he's not doing well for himself. Ah, it's tough times, Gary. Oh, look, it's, it's hard, Michael. Chuck Feeney's don't grow on trees. We'll have to wait around to get another Chuck Feeney. But another one will be found, and then it'll all get going again. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it, Gary. It'll be okay. I will act. Oh, on the Simon Coveney thing, I will include a link to a web archive of the page put up by the Chinese government about his talk. An archive page, just in case the Chinese amend what they put up or it disappears. Not saying it will, but just in case it does. The internet is a funny thing, Gary. What comes and goes in the internet, you, you, you never know. It can be hacked, you know. Russians can get in. As we were talking about NGOs and the oversight of NGOs, and state funding of NGOs, Michael. There's a group called the Far Right Observatory, who is who are an anonymous collective of left-wing academics and activists that the public isn't really aware of. But the ICCL, Michael, are the ICCL's latest accounts actually mention them and how the ICCL have uh, have gotten involved with this. It's just not clear what they actually do. I don't know. I can't. Do not get this. It, it, it can't be just me that when I hear this. The far or the far right observatory that I imagine a group of people in in a room maybe in in, in Burke near Burke Castle and there's an electronic and one of those big micros not microscopes big big electronic telescope and they're all sitting around screens and this this is it's going across Ireland and they're desperately looking in each county and it switches from Wexford to Wicklow to me to Kildare to me though to. Looking for these far right people through this magnificent thing, this great telescope, which has the capacity to spot people involved in far right, right activity. Because otherwise, I, it, I call it an observatory. I just lo- I love the idea that this this somewhere on some hill somewhere they're standing looking into the telescope. And right now, Gary, they may be looking in through your window, engaged as you are in far far right activity. Whatever about this, if. Private entities want to throw money at something like this. That's fine. But I was recently looking into this and I found out that they had been given a €225,000 grant over three years by the Rethink Ireland Equality Fund. Now that interested me, Michael. So, uh, 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 the what? Rethink Ireland's Equality Fund. Jesus, they really do just make this stuff up. I mean, they... Pull it out of their earth. There is an amazing array of organisations like this involved in different things that the public never hear about, but which actually serve as nexuses for substantial amounts of money. And some of them are pretty much just black boxes. You've no idea what's happening with them. So Rethink Ireland's Equality Fund 
is a matched fund, Michael. And what that means is this. If a philanthropist puts up a euro for a project, the Irish government puts up a euro. And usually there's a limit on this. As in, you know, if you raise three million in a year, we won't, we'll give you three million, but nothing else. In this instance, what this means is that the state has given a payment of 112,500 euro to the Far-Right Observatory, which is again an anonymous collective of activists, which has no public means of communication, whose public-facing work comprises six, I think, five or six articles written over the space of two years, and which legally, Michael, does not appear to exist as as a distinct entity. In fact, the grant had to be given to Uplift, the socially progressive uh, petition site, in order to enable them to get the grant at all. So Uplift, when I talked to them, said that they are the legal entity representing the Far-Right Observatory until it can set itself up properly. It kind of sounds like the Far-Right Observatory, which is never a part of Uplift, has become a part of Uplift in a purely legal fashion in order for them to get this grant while they set themselves up. Now, that to me seems quite odd that we would give the state taxpayer money, would give over in over 100000 to a collection of activists. Now, as I said, they don't disclose members. There are a couple of people who I think are members, and they have, shall we say, Michael, very particular political leanings. Didn't they do that fantastic piece of research regarding far-right internet usage and searches in Ireland? No, that was Moonshot. Uh, Where you may have come across the Far-Right Observatory before is occasionally they will get reported in mainstream media, but it only tends to be particular journalists who will use them because they are a fully anonymous group. Because I have come across them before. I can't remember, but I thought that was it. Connor Gallagher in The Times has used them as a source before. And the examiner, they'll turn up the odd bit in. Actually, it may have been, they may have, they may have got a quote from him or got a, he got a quote from them on the, on that story. I can't remember. So that, that night itself is interesting. So we're giving this money to a group inside another group, which is planning to become independent, but isn't yet, which the public has no way of contacting, appears to have produced no work to the public. The type of work it produces is absolutely unclear. And as I said, does not exist as a legally distinct entity, which, Michael, I would assume would make oversight slightly problematic. Hmm. I wonder how the state will be able to tell if it has pissed away this money or not pissed away this money. Yeah. When you actually go onto the, the Equality Funds page, it doesn't really have any detail on these guys either. It says it's a collective platform founded to monitor, analyse, inform, and take action to counter far-right activity in hate in Ireland. But then it also says it's going to focus on the far-right, rising Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and racism. And then it says, you know, they, they work with the ICCL, they work with the Women's Council of Ireland, they work to, with Belongja, they work with Tenai, the transgender, and that it, it's going to produce high-level data and analysis. So I asked the Equality Fund about this, because the Equality Fund say that they don't give money to entities whose primary purpose is research. And that is what the Far-Right Observatory says it does. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked why this restriction was waived, and they were given money, and they just said that uh, nothing was waived, and we're satisfied that it meets the eligibility criteria. I then took that to the department, which oversees the funding that went into this, and they said we're satisfied that all such funding is in accordance with government policies. So this is now government policy. 
apparently. Well, it's good to know it's government policy. Good indeed. Yeah. So it's going to be really fun to see what comes out of these guys. Uh, if, assuming we see it at all. We seem to have basically got to the point where we will fund an organisation that for all intents and purposes doesn't exist. Well, you know, when there's so much money sloshing around the gaff garage, eventually, yeah, it'll go somewhere and it will do good somewhere, I'm sure. You were talking about the, about the size of the NGO sector in Ireland, Michael, and it's grotesque. It's, it's incredible. But, like, do you not look at stuff like this and you're like, maybe the NGO sector and the government funding of it has just lost the run of itself. We, we were discussing off before. I, I would know. We could have taken the opportunity to Google it. I don't know if you you did. It's either five. I, the number in my head is either five point six or five point nine billion is the total for the NGOs. Now, I'm sure that you you root around that you'll find lots of organisations that are, are, are basically are being subcontracted out to do work that uh, otherwise the state would be doing or might expect to do. If I remember, once upon a time, a Fine Gael government was elected on a promise that it was going to take a slash and burn approach to all these damn NGOs. Do you remember that, Gary, or is that just me? I was going to say public excitement, but the public doesn't care. I remember there was very much excitement in certain sectors, and not just the right-wing sectors, not just the socially conservative sectors, that these things be bled to death. Because, you know... the genesis of the NGO in Ireland, Michael, is actually quite interesting. The realisation that you could take politically problematic people and stick them somewhere. Well, you know, a decent standard of living funded by the government and they would just leave you alone. And everyone thought this was a great idea. And then you go 20 years down the road and you look and you realise there's a fucking army of these people with billions of euro behind them. Huge, huge amounts of money, which they u- use then... For with their media outreach and with their connections in the, the shall we say the on the unpaid media, to lobby very often, I would say, against the issues of the citizenry, to lobby that the citizenry be taxed in order to raise more money to give to their pet projects. We've seen the evolution of the the notion of a charity being away from something which is founded by a group of volunteers who get who use their time and their efforts and their skills and their own money in order to alleviate a particular problem that they care about. They have now transformed. They don't use their, they use their time, but they don't use their money. They, they, use, they use their time and effort to lobby government to give them money in order to do this. And I just, I just would love the idea of God, it would be an absolutely useless exercise, I suppose, but some kind of a, a properly constituted doll committee where we just went down through one after another with one of those old fine coon, tooth combs, those combs used to get nits out of children's hair and go, now, is this a legitimate use of Joe Bloggs' mur- money? Is this something that Annie Murphy should be paying for? Or is this something that if these people fair, really care about this issue, then they should go off and care for it on their own time and with their own money? And it's not really fair or honest or reasonable to expect other citizens to pay them in order to, for them to care about this issue. It's grotesque. I mean, you consider the, the proportion of the outgoings, uh, spendings from this government, and you consider our external debt, and you consider the deficit and all of these. But even if we were flush with money and we didn't owe a penny and we did, and we're running a budget surplus, it would still be wrong, Gary, that you're paying people to lobby against the interests. 
of the of other citizens and using that the power and the money that you have got and the legitimacy which is conferred upon you simply by the receipt of this money and the title that you're given in order to do this so if you have a membership organization yeah you can corrupt a membership organization and you can kind of play fast and loose and confuse people but fundamentally you need to keep the membership happy because you need them there whether it's their votes or their money these organizations don't have to care what the public thinks about them. They don't have to care who anyone outside two or three people care about them. And if you're these organizations, you have a very strong incentive to structure your organization to please particular people. And we were talking about the ICCL and why you refuse state funding. It's so that this doesn't happen. But if you're the ICCL and you get 20% of your budget from one trust and you get 20% from the EU and you get there are very, like, there's a lot of pressure on you to just, but just do the things you know those people would like, and then you'll get more money, and you will collapse. Yes, well, as I say, I, I, I'm slightly more, the functionality of what they're supposed to be doing and their independence may be affected or impinged by the source of their money, there's no doubt about that, and particularly if there's any kind of conditionality associated with it i don't know if there are if there are terms and conditions regarding how the money is used after when the, the kind of the assessments that after the project is finished and depending on those assessments whether you get more money i'm, I'm sure all that's true but i i go back to my, my previous point i really I, I i care so little about that ultimately i care about the fact that your money your taxpayers money is being used to lobby to to, to pay lobby organizations that are lobbying for things which are actively antithetical to what you believe in. The ICCL, by, by the standards of the Irish NGO sector, is actually relatively uncorrupted by government money. There are organisations out there whose only purpose is to lobby the Irish government to do particular things who are entirely funded directly by the Irish government. At least with these guys, you can say, well, there's like a step involved or it's EU money, and maybe it's a fruit of the poisonous tree in relation to the other stuff. But also, Gary, to be honest, come on. The reality is that most of the, the, the kinds of politicians in the EU that are going to vote for to give money to the ICCL are, 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 are state organisations or state entities that might give them money here. I don't know if there's a great deal of danger of them being, of being corrupting influences because I can't see that they're going to have a worldview which is frankly that different to the ICCL. I think they're people that pretty well go to the same clubs and like the same bands and read the same journalists and enjoy the same novelists, that they are very much like each other. And I suspect that they, the risk of them being corrupted by the desires of the influences of the other groups are very small because they're all the same people. And in fact, in some sense, when you look at some NGOs, not saying the ICL, but some NGOs, uh, the relationship between the state, the semi-state, and the NGO—they are literally the same people. There, there is something of a carousel of appointments going in in this small little country of ours, where people go from one from one sector to the other sector to the other sector, with a degree of ease. Which at times you can start to oh, so is he in the is he state now or is he? No, it doesn't really matter because they're all the same anyway. No, I mean Liam Herrick, who is now the CEO of the ICCL. I believe was one of the advisors of uh, President Higgins. And before that, he was in the Penal Reform Trust. These people move around in these positions pretty freely. There is more than one, there is more than one gravy train. There's a, there's a, there are networks of trains going around the country. It's just a question of getting on the right one. If they slows down, jump in, 
I heard an argument the other day that the rise of NGOs was related to the problems of meritocracy. And I, I heard that. I was like, oh, here we go again. But they actually made, they made an interesting point. They said that meritocracy is actually working quite well now in a lot of the Western world. And what we're seeing is people who historically would have just been per and stayed per and not gone anywhere. They're now going and taking jobs which would historically have just gone to the children of the very well off. And that has displaced an entire class of, shall we say, the less dazzling children of the upper and upper middle classes. And those people have basically been given a lifeboat. This thing which is entirely funded by various interests and which there is no meritocracy about. It's basically a retirement plan. Now, I don't know if that's true. I'd have to look into the actual social mobility stats, but it is at least amusing. I think there's an element of truth. It's certainly true that merit, that effective meritocracy has, I think, substantive reason. There's quite a lot of studies show show that. If nothing else, once upon a time, if you're the the son or the daughter of, uh, say, a doctor, and the cost associated with studying medicine and the the ability to be able to use a friend or a connection to get into one of the colleges, and the numbers of the numbers of people trying to pursue it. It, and it's a while ago now, but some time ago, it was doable to get your kid in. And also the points were not massively, incredibly impossible. Everybody who does medicine now, I am I'm pretty sure, is getting 600 points, or whatever the equivalent is now under the new system, of from their leaving. And that has to have displaced some people. There have to be people coming up who've... No doctors, no lawyers, and no architects in their in their gene pool who are hitting those six hundred points, and they're they're put they're pushing somebody else. Meritocracy can be a brutal mistress at times, Gary. Yeah, but luckily enough, we've got the NGOs, which in Ireland were already designed to take problematic people and give them something to do for a nice wage, and no one is going to bother you. There's no metrics. You don't need to answer to anyone because the state, by God, does not have a handle on what they're paying to NGOs. And let's face it, the last thing in the world the state is, wants to do is go around encouraging the idea that just because you fail at something or you're incompetent or so, at something or that your projects don't meet any kind of success criteria, that you, that should mean that you have to leave your job or you should be punished for that. I mean, that kind of thinking would destroy the nation, I think, in a matter of weeks rather than months. No, I mean, someone asking a question like, you know, how did you spend €241,000 on printing a newsletter? That'll bring down the entire system. There'll be nothing left. <laughs> People start asking questions about where you got your photocopiers from. Questions are raised about exactly what happened here. Anarchy, Michael. Best no one asked those questions. How much did that hospital cost? Ah, it cost what it cost. But anyway, we will be back on Friday. Bar someone passing out again in a steroid-induced haze. Oh, God. So, nag, nag, nag. The person falls asleep two or three times in the middle of an interview. Suddenly, it's a big deal. Anyway, yes, we should be back on Friday with the help of God. All the best. Bye-bye.